guest today is Natasha White from Bloomberg. Michu and I are mostly focused on sovereign debt, but have begun to dally, I guess, in ESG of late, uh, especially things like green bonds and debt for nature swaps, uh, which means that we've spent lots and lots of time reading Natasha's reporting. She, she covers a huge range of ESG-related topics at Bloomberg, including some we're, we're especially eager to talk about, like a debt for nature swaps, such as that conducted in Belize. But we were thrilled when she agreed to join us and are really looking forward to, to a conversation today. Natasha, thanks so much for, for coming on. Hey, uh, thanks, thanks, Boo. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to, to the conversation. Can we start with a, a bit of background? And, and I think my question is, maybe it's too broad uh, and you can narrow it as, uh, as you see fit. I, I think the, the kind of broadest way to put it is sort of what's ESG. Um, <laughs> and the reason I ask that, so we had communicated a bit before, uh, after I read a story you had written about the allegations about Adani. Um, I, I may be pronouncing that wrong as a sign of my very limited knowledge of the, the market. But, um, you know, which, which as I had sort of uh, encountered, it was kind of a, sh- a story about short sellers and allegations of kind of garden variety uh, uh, corporate fraud. And, and yet it, it seemed to have turned into an ESG story as well. And, and that had just sort of made me wonder what the limits of ESG are these days. I guess as an ESG reporter, what's what's your beat? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. Um I mean, well, as you know, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance um concerns. So it's a very broad umbrella term that encapsulates almost anything you could you can think of. Um, but I think when when we talk about it from the investing perspective, it's sort of, at least in professional um, ESG investor, in terms of approaches by professional ESG investors. And I think that's often separate to what retail investors, so the average person on the street might think of as ESG investing. But if we just start by the professional approaches to ESG, it can it can be split along kind of three general lines. Um, and this is, for example, when putting together um, ESG labeled funds. So they might, uh, the first approach is exclusionary. So you might exclude, for example, coal companies or companies that um, procure weapons from your from your portfolios. Or um, you might adopt a thematic approach. So you choose to invest only in solar companies or companies that um, create batteries or build wind farms. And then the third bucket is what's kind of labeled ESG integration. And what that broadly means is taking into account uh, the ESG ratings of um, of companies. Um, and there's been, you know, there's been a, a deal of controversy around these, for example, you know, they're often not public, um, they're certainly not comparable across providers. And kind of one of the main areas of concern, and this links directly to Adani, is that, you know, when when you and I, or perhaps the average person on the street thinks about sustainable investing, you think that, um, you know, sustainable funds or sustainable investors might be mitigating for the risks that companies pose to the planet. Um, but actually what ESG ratings do is look at the risks that um, environmental, social and governance concerns 
opposed to companies. So, for example, if you look at, um, you know, if, if it's a, if if it's a company with, um, with using water, it wouldn't be about the water scarcity that the company might induce on the local communities. It would be more about the risks that water scarcity in that region would pose to the company. So, you know, if we if we look at that approach. Um, ESG investors and um, Adani, various Adani stocks made it into a number, many ESG funds. Those investors might think that um, or, or might expect that um, the, these ESG um, ratings can help buffer them against um, such risks. And those include governance risks, um, accounting and, 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 and such oversight. So, so yeah, the, the, these um, you know, you, this is where Adani can be looked at as an, as an ESG concern um, because investors um, using the ESG approach, paying for ratings pro, pro, um, provision, um, might have hoped to have had their investments buffered against such risks. And in fact, it wasn't the case in this instance. But I think it's also illustrative to look at how different ESG ratings providers have, have responded. And it's not been uniform on this question of whether it was an ESG issue. So, for example, S&P Global in early February said it was going to remove Adani Enterprises from its um, some of its sustainability indexes. Sustainalytics, another um, provider, downgraded the ESG scores of, an, of a number of Adani entities. But MSCI, the kind of main um, provider, took a lot, 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 a lot longer to act and actually hasn't changed the ratings of the ESG ratings of any of the Adani stocks. So you can see there that different ESG ratings providers have responded differently to the incident and whether or not it's really an ESG consideration. What you just said now connects very nicely to a recent academic paper trying to measure the degree of variance across these different raters for ESG and the degree of variance is, is stunning. But I'm hoping we can come back to what you said at the start, and I hope I got it right, but if not, maybe you can correct me. And that is that the way at least some of the ratings work, but it seems like all of the ratings, is that you take a company's current state of being and you look at that company's vulnerability to ESG risks. So climate risks, so if companies in Florida and they have the risk of hurricanes or the, the company is, you know, has some kind of a risk with respect to labor abuses, you look at that risk. And then you look at their rating is based on how much they can mitigate that risk. So does that mean that the worse the company is in terms of what it's doing now, the higher its ESG score can be? So this is all about transition, and it's not at all about the investor improving the world as a general matter. It's, so if you have a really crappy company, or you know you have the Saudi oil company or something like that, then they have they've they've they're great in terms of ESG ratings. Or have I gotten this upside down? Mm, I think I think the 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 point here, and 
again, like I'm speaking to Bloomberg reporting, we haven't looked at um, closely at all the different ratings providers, but um, it's this question of double materiality and whether or not um, ESG ratings are taking into account both the impact that the companies have on the world as well as the impact that ESG risks in the world might have on the company. And ESG ratings really look at the latter. So um, that's what they are are measuring and that's what they are seeking to address in in or at least numerate in their in the rating that is given. So is is this is this part of what the regulators are looking at? So I, I think in one of your recent articles, it might have been the Adani article. You you have so much wonderful work that uh, I'm now confused uh, among your different articles. But you talked about sort of the Article 8 box and the Article 9 box. And there was a question about which box these uh, different products were uh, falling into. I, or actually, I think whether the funds could claim to be in one box or the other. Are the regulators trying to change what's going on and create more consistency among the ratings? Or that's just not even on the radar screen yet? Yeah, so so what you're um, referring to there is the um, the SFDR regime in, in, in Europe, where regulators have tried to address um, greenwashing concerns, and they've brought in a disclosure regime where um, fund managers can label their funds as Article 6, 8 or 9, Article 9 being the kind of greenest, Article 8 being light green, um, which is kind of funds that promote um, ESG characteristics, and then Article 6. Um, so in the case of Adani, um, uh, Adani stocks are in both, well, a lot of Article 8 um, funds, as well as a, a number of Article 9. Yeah, so that, yeah, that is part of, 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 a, of a regulation in, in, in Europe that is seeking to address um, greenwashing. And there's similar, um, in the UK, for example, regulators are also looking at their own um, regime. So part of what I'm I'm taking from this conversation is that to the extent investors are interested in the the effects their investments are going to have in the world, they need to be looking at, at things that are much more directly targeted to that. To that, and ESG ratings are simply not gonna uh, not going to be productive in that sense for them. Which I think, assuming I have that right, leads us fairly nicely, I think, perhaps to the topic Me Too and I are especially interested in talking about, which is the topic of green bonds and related instruments. Um, and in particular, maybe we can start with debt for nature swaps of the sort that was conducted in Belize. So you had written about, just as as background, we've been, I think, struggling over what to make of these debt for nature swaps and are really deeply cynical about some green financial instruments, green bonds in general, but had been cautiously optimistic about debt for nature swaps, or at least these seemed a way of genuinely adding some credibility to a market that seemed to us to really lack it. 
you had written about a, a Barclays report on some of these debt for nature swaps recently, which was quite critical of them. Can you tell us a bit about that report and, and the, the reaction it generated? Sure. And I guess before I start, because I you kind of you painted quite a depressing picture of my reporting at the beginning. And I think the point here is the jury is still out on these um on these instruments and and what they can and can't do. And it's about kind of improving improving how they're implemented. Um so yeah. I so guess an optimistic uh perspective is that there is so much room to improve. I mean it, <laughs> as Mark and I as Isn't teachers, that always? you know, that's yeah, that's the most optimistic. So you know, you tell your students there's so there's so much for you to do. You 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 the world is open for you. So much improvement to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um shoot for the stars. So Barclays, um, yeah, Barclays um, published an analysis on the emerits of debt, debt for nature swaps um, in general. But there was one element in particular of their paper that I found particularly interesting in the context of, of the reporting that I've done on the topic. Um, and that was that their analysts um, pointed out that it was misleading to label a bond as blue if 100% of the proceeds aren't allocated to nature projects. And that's kind of drawing from international law norms around green bonds where um, all of the proceeds from the instrument are meant to be allocated to the green projects in question. And obviously there's a lot of debate around what's a green project or not, and the same could apply to blue projects. But Barclay's point was that in the debt for in in debt for nature swaps, where um, you know a large portion of the proceeds are actually used um, for debt restructuring, and only a small portion go to marine conservation projects, that that is you know it's, it's effectively misleading to label them as as blue bonds as per the kind of market definition, and it's it sparked quite a debate in the ESG space. I mean. On the one hand, for example, Bloomberg intelligence analysts said that, yeah, the use of proceeds to be labeled green or blue of a bond need to be at least 90% or higher. The International Finance Corporation, um, you know, they've talked about proceeds being exclusively dedicated to marine protection. And interestingly, um, Electa, so um, one of the investors in the blue bonds attached to the Belize debt for nature swap, said that they don't include um, that blue bond in their green or social bond disclosures, um, green being a kind of umbrella for blue in this instance, but rather under other investments. So they themselves are not, um, you know, uh, labeling it as blue. Uh, others disagreed. So um, Sean Kidney from the Climate Bonds Initiative said that, you know, labeling concerns in these instances are overblown and that what really what we really need to focus on is whether that instrument is, is making a difference. So yeah, it, it it sparked quite a debate, and I think it's an interesting one to to be having. It's so it's so strange to me from my perspective, in the sense that it's it's the last thing I would have criticized. And, and I I should be clear, I didn't mean to portray your reporting as as communicating a doom and gloom type of perspective. And in fact, quite the contrary. But I. This is the last thing I would have thought to criticize the debt for nature swaps for. Mm -hmm. uh, I can think of all kinds of things that I am, I am 
all kinds of questions that I have about them. But it's so interesting that green bonds, yeah, 100% of the proceeds are going to go to green activities. But that promise seems to be completely lacking in credibility from everything that I can tell. So you have the one instrument where you're just sort of hoping that they devote 100% of the proceeds to green stuff, but they can devote 0% and you have no rights. And here we have a transaction with the debt for nature swap where, yes, a small portion of the proceeds are going to go to marine conservation, but they will go to marine conservation. That just strikes me as really ironic that the the credible investment is the one that has provoked people's skepticism. Did you get a, a sense that that irony was appreciated in in the market? Well, I think this is about a race to the top, right? And and separating out the issue. So you've rightly pointed out the, um, you know, the problems in, in the green bond market, and perhaps this transaction addresses some of those problems, but it's also part of a bigger picture. And, you know, the ESG bonds market is deemed by many to be a, a, you know, key, um, a key pillar in how the world is going to fund the energy transition and efforts to halt and reverse biodiversity destruction. And if um, we start to see issuers um, putting instruments out onto that market, where the market participants think what they're buying is 100% dedication to the cause and what they're actually buying is 10% dedication to the cause, then whether it's a blue bond attached to Belize's debt for nature swap or or something else, I think it's a problem. It's a question of diluting the integrity of those instruments in the market. Um, and of course, there's a hundred other concerns that are attached to those instruments. Um, for example, whether or not um, they end up where the proceeds end up where they're supposed to and et cetera, et cetera. So I think the point is that in this transaction, um, you know, the, the, there are some, what well, highly professional entities involved that, um, and it's a it's a question of upholding best practice um, across the board, and I think that can be expected of of Credit Suisse and the Nature Conservancy, just as it can be expected expected of anyone else. Anyone issuing bonds into that market um, should be upholding, I think, the international best practice. So, Natasha, if you don't mind, I want to stay on the Belize debt for nature swap in part because your articles on it have been so interesting and um, at least I didn't read them as uh, optimistically as uh, maybe Mark did, although I, I, don't, I, I can't see how Mark would have read this particular <laughs> article uh, optimistically that I'm going to uh, refer to. So you had a follow-up article, I think, uh, to the one about the Barclays report, where you had quoted, uh, I think it was Mark Espat and uh, Jeremy Zettelmeyer, and you talked about the costs of doing the deal. And if I remember correctly, the costs for this deal that you know retires about five hundred million dollars worth of debt, if I remember the the Belize super bond, and then has a new blue bond issuance through some convoluted Cayman Island structure and subsidiaries uh, 
you know, also probably on some nice offshore location. And you talked about how expensive this all had been. I think it costs in the vicinity of $100 million to do the transaction, uh, including the costs that the Nature Conservancy, good guys though they are, are charging to the transaction, the costs of getting the insurance, uh, the costs of hiring Credit Suisse that, you know, uh, they Credit Suisse likes to get paid and likes to get paid a lot, presumably. That's why they're Credit Suisse. That suggested that maybe this deal was not worth the amount of money that was spent. And certainly I read the quotes from Jeromin as suggesting that. And Jeromin also seemed to invoke the prior history of debt for nature swaps where they had turned out to be rather expensive endeavors that the bang for the buck was not very much. So all of this is to say that when Mark and I did our the first episode on green stuff, I think, we were very optimistic about the Belize deal in part because it really did seem there, were, there was good monitoring, uh, that that there would actually be an imp improvement in the environment. We didn't really focus in on how much this was costing. And am I correct? Bottom line, this seems to have been a really crap deal from a cost perspective. Well, I think that article, it so the article came before the, the Barclays analysis. Um, and... Yeah, critics that I spoke to were questioning the transaction costs and in particular, so $10 million is what had originally been disclosed by um, the government of Belize and the Nature Conservancy, but someone took a closer look, Daniel Munavar from UNCTAD took a closer look at the, at the spread, so um, what Belize is paying to borrow versus what Credit Suisse and the Nature Conservancy are paying to borrow. And over the lifetime of the deal, so over two decades, that's um, the difference there is 86 million. And that raised questions as to what that money that Belize could have left on the table is going towards. And the answer from the Nature Conservancy and Credit Suisse were um, the um, the costs that you um, that you laid out. So the majority went towards transaction costs, although haven't ever had a kind of de detailed itemized layout of what they are and certainly don't know what Credit Suisse was paid um, or how it was remunerated in, in, in this deal. So that has led people to question the, as you say, the costs of the transaction. And it's my understanding that um, that's been a similar criticism of past um, debt for nature swaps. And I think, again, like um, I understand if, if, my reporting is leading you with a leaving you with a depressed outlook on these deals. But I think I think it's about um first of all, I think transparency goes a long way to alleviating these these concerns. And that is full transparency. And sometimes, unfortunately, that seems to be at odds with commercial considerations. But um I think that is one of the key issues here. Um it builds trust and it answers it would answer a lot of these questions in the first instance. The second point I think is that um, 
you know, it's 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 a valid. I think these are valid questions or concerns to for these critics to be raising. And it's particularly as a number of developing countries looks at embark on similar deals. You know, what are the transaction costs that they should be anticipating? How um, could the structure be simplified? So there's not, a, you know, a couple of intermediary vehicles in the middle, each of which have their own costs associated with them across various jurisdictions, and therefore could the the structure be made cheaper? Um, you know, just just what what um, points should they be these countries be taking into cons into consideration as they embark on these negotiations? I think they're all um, you know important important points to consider. Um, so that was really the I think the um, the points that were raised in 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 that piece. Does it make sense to think of what the Nature Conservancy and and others are doing as a way to channel political incentives for these countries I, that's a that's a really vague way to to put the question i'm i'm struggling because most of our economist friends tend to turn up their nose at debt buybacks um, you know especially as a means of dealing with excessive debt and, you know, in many respects, a, a country that is nearing the debt crisis would be much better off if it imposed the, the sharpest haircuts it could on all of its creditors. And, and that would free up a whole lot more fiscal space that in principle could be devoted to environmental causes subject to all of the other competing demands that domestic political forces would generate. And so I, I sort of feel like in part, the way I'm looking at the the Belize deal is as a second best or least worst kind of alternative. Like in in a perfect world, I would have thought a much wider and more comprehensive debt restructuring, followed by even deeper investments in the environment, would have been the optimal outcome. But maybe that's not politically achievable, and so we're left with debt for nature swaps does that does that make sense as a way of thinking about this is that too too cynical too pointy headed i don't know yeah i mean i i like i said i think the the jury's a bit out and i think on in the belize instance it's a bit too soon to to tell either way how how this deal is going to is going to turn out for for the country and its people and its its environment i think the other like point in my head is around blended finance and again it's sort of touted as a way to to finance the energy transition and and other environmental um you know big environmental issues like the decline in biodiversity because governments simply don't have enough money to pay for it themselves so you know the private sector needs to get involved and therefore in a way the um public funds can can de-risk private funds and the two revenue streams can combine to kind of finance what is otherwise unfinanceable um and i think these instances you know they they sort of pose really valid questions to that model like yes we need private finance to be involved but what's a fair price and who decides um and i think that's that's what what's come out at least in my head from um the reporting on this belize story is that Apparently, um, experts say that the transaction costs are high relative to the um, conservation fi finance. Um, could it have been done cheaper? Um, 
If not, are there alternatives? Um, if not, perhaps this is the best model we have. So I think, I think there's still like it, it's all still up for um, you know, the, well, the jury is still out. I think is is where we've got to on this. Oh, th this this particular member of the jury thinks that if it costs eighty six million for what they were touting as ten million, uh, that that. This, this is not a deal that is working so well for the people of Belize. But uh, that, but, but you guys can disagree with me and tell, tell me that no, 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 there's, there's money still, still there and there's great benefits. I, I want to ask a couple of other aspects of the, the Belize deal that I should have paid more attention to, but your article made me think, oh, I missed that. And, and one in particular is that one of the attractive features of this deal for Belize appears to have been that they didn't have to go through an IMF program. And I should have paid more attention because it should, it should cause one pause to the extent that a country saying, I don't want IMF scrutiny of what I do because after all the IMF, for all of the criticisms that we heap on it, and uh, Mark and I heap lots of criticisms on it because that's just what one does. It, I mean, it is a public body that's supposed to look out for the welfare of the world. And so if there's a country that says, ah, we don't really want you to come in and tell us what we're doing wrong, I should be a little bit wary of that. And this seems to be... Ha seems to have been one of the benefits. And I cannot help but think that if the fund had been involved, they would have looked askance at 86 million in transactions costs. And they, there's a quote from Mark Espat at the end of your piece. And it's, it's a, I mean, I need to learn to write from you. It's a great way to end it where he says, you know, for other countries, they should just negotiate well. I'm like, so what they like this? So are you saying that this was we paid too much or are you saying you should negotiate like us and this is the amount you should pay? Uh, but can you what was your sense of from the interviews with people like Jeremy and the others involved? That Was this skipping out on the IMF a good thing for future debt for nature swaps? Um. So I think. Yeah, I think Mark's comments um, around the IMF was that at that moment in time, an IMF deal and the kind of austerity measures that typically come with that, you know, reining in public spending, losing public sector job losses, would not have been politically palatable for the country. And this was a an attractive alternative for them to explore. Um, and I think Belize remains adamant so far that it was a a really good deal for them um and i think time will tell i think yeah mark's well, comment should be taken that. right i mean belize that this the, politically they got a lot of traction for doing the deal and we were part of the you know part of the crowd that was applauding the deal i mean i understand the the incentives of the the politicians to say we did great uh, but mm. i i can't think that your article 
made the other politicians who want to do debt for nature swaps uh, think, oh, you know, th this is going to work so well because they they're going to fear Natasha, I think, when they do the next deal, and that, that's going to be a good thing. And and the if your primary reason for not having the IMF is you don't want to do the things that you need to do, that seems a teensy weensy bit problematic. Yeah. Um... So on on the other on the other commentators, and I don't I I don't have the what they said in front of me, so I don't want to paraphrase individuals. But I think the 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 other kind of point that was brought to the table is whether it's right to address um, you know kill two birds with one stone. And I think you laid it out before. Like there are dedicated instruments to dealing with debt crises, and there are dedicated mechanisms to dealing with um, conservation finance. And let's keep the two things separate. And I think that was that was the other kind of bucket of 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 criticism, alongside the kind of transparency and and transaction costs. Um, yeah, I'm cu I'm curious to hear both of your views on 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 that one. I am just a simple country lawyer without um, without great views. But no, I I um I have been a little bit skeptical of debt for nature swaps from the outset without having anything particularly uh, terrible to say about them i've just been question i've been um, concerned among other things about the scalability of the transaction form and then understanding that it also comes with this extraordinary, or at least potentially, can come with a fairly extraordinary level of transaction cost is not is not uh, giving me greater confidence. Can we talk a little bit about scalability? Do you do you have a sense of how much official money is uh, potentially there to be brought to bear? Uh, from what I understand, without the the political risk insurance, the deal looks very much less appealing to investors. And so I'm sort of wondering how much appetite there is for harnessing official sector money to back deals like this. Did you get a sense of what people's expectations are about scalability and talking to, to folks in the market? Um, so I think Barclays put a number on it, um, and I don't have it to hand, although yeah, so I think Barclays said that the debt for nature swaps market could exceed 800 billion. And I think previously, the Nature Conservancy had even said 2 trillion. Um, so they're big numbers. That's on the um, kind of supply side, as it were. That's in terms of the developing country distressed debt that could be restructured in this way. That's not on the um, kind of demand side from the ESG investors. From that side, I I don't have a sense of of the scale and how much um, you know. I couldn't put a dollar figure on on the demand that's out there. I would just Electa. Um, I spoke to were um, you know very happy with the blue bond investments. Um, I think that the instruments are seen as kind of low risk, relatively high return ESG instruments. Um, so my sense is that there is there is appetite, and particularly if they can come with policies like what the DFC um, provided. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't have a sense of 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 the scale on the demand side. We we've taken up 
enough of your time already, but I, I, I can't help but try to ask one more question in the time that we have, which is, is shifting gears a bit. And, and you can tell us if it's too much of a shift, but I wanted to, to ask about biodiversity more broadly. Uh, and one of the things Me Too and I have been struggling with is how to interpret investors who have claimed interest in environmental causes, which there's a cynical story that, that could be told that says they're not very interested at all. And yet every investor that I, I speak to, and I think that's probably many fewer than you have, gives the impression of being genuinely concerned. And in fact, they're if they're not concerned, they're spending a whole lot of time running around doing stuff that uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I, I know that there have been funds or at least calls for funds to push for greater efforts to conserve biodiversity and, and, and things like that. There was a, an article you had written towards the end of last year about a, a biodiversity-focused fund. And I'm just sort of wondering whether you are optimistic about genuine market demand for climate improvements, which may or may not be correlated with investment returns? So, I mean, I think my, my gut reaction to questions like this is I'm, I'm a cynic. It's, it, it's, it's my job. Um, I think like when it comes to biodiversity, investors look at it in two ways. One is the risks and the other is opportunities. So risks that um, the loss of biodiversity and nature destruction can pose to their portfolios and the economy more broadly, which is huge, obviously. Um, and secondly, um, the opportunities. So where there are chances to make some money off of new products. On the risk side, I think everyone's grappling to understand you know, how they can mitigate the risks and contribute to solving the problem. On the opportunity side, yeah, it's fascinating to see what's 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 coming out. Um, so yeah, there are funds now that are dedicated to biodiversity and there'll be kind of funds, or at least the ones that I've looked at are where, for example, half of the companies are selected based on, um, you know, supposedly doing things to, to um, doing things that are going to help nature some way. So for example, um, Oh, the name's escaping me right now. The um, fake meat, um, Beyond Meat. I think it's called Beyond Meat. Um, so, for example, companies like that that are coming up with um, alternative alternatives to meat um, that therefore could, you know, somehow limit deforestation, limit methane emissions, etc. Um, so they might the, the, the kind of impact investing or the thematic investing of ESG that I mentioned at the beginning. They'll be focusing on companies that um, are investing in kind of biodiversity neutral or what they call biodiversity positive um, areas. And then the other kind of bucket is companies that have concrete plans in place to improve their biodiversity. So that, ironically, this might be the worst possible companies that chemicals companies, for example, that have a terrible, terrible impact on biodiversity, that, but at least have a plan in place to improve on it. So they might find themselves into find find their, their way into biodiversity funds. So, you know, as a as a as an investor, as a particularly as a retail investor, um you really need to be careful about what you're, you know, digging underneath the labels, basically, because it's not always quite what you might expect in, in these funds. 
Um, the other product that I'm fascinated by is biodiversity offsets. So I think we're all familiar with carbon offsets where companies can um, kind of purchase these tokens that um, have somewhere else in the world reduced, removed or helped avoid carbon emissions to compensate for their own emissions. Um, and that's actually emerging now in the biodiversity space. Um, so companies that want to claim to be nature positive can invest in biodiversity credits um, to help them meet that that end. Um, the, the, the carbon credits market has been heavily criticized in terms of the underlying quality of, of the credits and um, proponents I've spoken to of biodiversity credits are kind of adamant that um, these aren't offsets um, and they'll address all of the concerns that we've seen in the in the carbon markets. Um, but it's not quite clear to me yet how that will happen in practice. Um, and obviously biodiversity is a lot harder to measure than carbon. And it's even more problematic to compensate, you know, destruction from a dam in Kenya with some wildlife in Namibia, for example. So, yeah, lots of questions raised uh, in that market, which is um, emerging fast, I think. Natasha, thank you so much. This has been a special treat. And I have to say, as we have been talking, I do see the silver lining. And the silver lining is that if if there are more people who do the kind of in-depth reporting that you have been doing on the range of green techniques being used in the financial markets, we will end up holding the feet of these institutions to the fire. And, and if Mark is correct that these investors genuinely want to produce change while needing to show returns, holding their feet to the fire seems necessary. I mean, the the, the Belize deal surely has some really good aspects to it in terms of producing genuine change. And if, if it's really expensive, then everybody looks bad. So maybe the costs will be less thanks to people like you the next time. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on our little podcast. And I, I hope that we will be able to persuade you to come back. You're, you're really doing fabulous reporting. So thank you. Well, thank you both. That's, that's very generous. And um, I'd love to come back. It's been a, it's been a fascinating conversation. And yeah, thanks very much for having me. Thank you.